0: I invite you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And we're actually going to read the whole chapter. Um, we're going to breeze through. We spent like the first four chapters like in like, I think like four months. Like we spent four months in the first four chapters. And then in just one day, I guess two, I guess one, one hour, we'll just cover one whole chapter. Okay. All right. This is um, what Paul writes to the Corinthians. He says, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the house of the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of the world or the greedy and the swindlers or idolaters. Since you that, since, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed. Or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. For what, I have do, what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. This is the word of the Lord. Is, is ignorance truly bliss? Is ignorance truly bliss? Is it true that what you don't know can't hurt you? Uh, I was listening to a story on a podcast uh, about how a Chinese American woman named Lulu, uh, her immediate family and her extended family in China, collectively did not tell their matriarch grandma that she was diagnosed with stage four lung cancer and had only three months to live. What would you have done? (laughs) Lulu was totally against lying, but what her family did was they created a fake medical report to prevent her from finding out. And building one lie on top of another, they ran into a problem. If their matriarch grandma only had three months to live, how was everyone in the family who lived in three different countries, how were they able to give their proper respects and say their final goodbyes? What could get everyone to be in the same place at the same time? And so what they did was they disguised, uh, they decided to disguise their giant goodbye party by staging a giant wedding banquet For one of their cousins. If you had three months to live. If you had three months to live. But you didn't know. Would you want others to tell you? Or would you want others to lie to you? Maybe not death. But if you were doing something harmful to yourself. And the only people who knew about it was your family. Would you want them to tell you? Or to let you be? And on the other hand. If you knew that someone was doing something wrong. Would you tell them? Perhaps the most dominant metaphor that the Apostle uh, Paul applies to to Christians is the idea of family. And in almost every letter, the Apostle Paul begins with some kind of metaphor of family. In other words, those who gather together and follow Jesus together are, are family. They are called brothers and sisters. If we believe in Jesus and follow him, we are brothers and sisters. And you're like, no! Like... My blood relatives are already bad enough. And what the Apostle Paul will be addressing this evening is what happens, what happens when there is something wrong in the family of God? What happens when there's something wrong in the family of God? What is the res- what is the family's responsibility? And if you are joining um, our study for the first time, I, I promise you this is uh, not normally what we go through. <laughs> uh, but, you know, it's important that the idea of family frames these 13 controversial verses that we just read, and we'll unpack all of it in just a second. But I do want to point out that one of the benefits of going through uh, passage by passage in a letter like 1 Corinthians is that sometimes we encounter passages like tonight that are hard and tough. Preaching passage by passage through 1 Corinthians means that God's word isn't just the easy parts, but oftentimes the, the, the parts that often make us feel uneasy, like this one. And so tonight we come across a pretty tough passage. Um, If you've been following along in Paul's flow of thought, you'll remember that the first four chapters of 1 Corinthians deals specifically with divisions in the church. Divisions damage the health, the unity, and effectiveness of the church. But as we turn our attention to chapter 5 and onward, we see yet another threat to the church. And that threat is sin, and not just any sin, but sin that is left unaddressed, and ignored. To not address and to ignore the sin was to destroy not only the individual, but the whole community itself. And what the Apostle Paul calls our attention to this evening is the danger of letting sin go unaddressed, and that sometimes, to preserve the health of the whole family, you will need to take deep and drastic measures that are also difficult and often uncomfortable. And what the Apostle Paul wants us to see is that we are a family, that we are a family. And when your sibling isn't behaving the way that they should, the most loving thing to do isn't to ignore what they are doing, but to actually help them by addressing what they're doing. And so the key idea for uh, this evening's message is that a family centered on Jesus the Messiah are to live counterculturally by holding family members accountable to the way of Jesus and by, and by living in the way of Jesus ourselves. And so the first idea is that we need to be holding each other accountable to the way of Jesus. Now, something to remember that is that 1 Corinthians uh, is a letter written by a real person who happened to be the Apostle Paul, writing to a real group of people that also happened to be the Corinthians. And that means that we are not the original recipients of this letter. And because we aren't the original recipients of this letter we are reading someone else's mail and airing out someone else's dirty laundry. But as we eavesdrop into what the letter says, I think we'll be surprised to find certain truths that are actually helpful for us today. And so take a look at verse one. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. Now the Apostle Paul somehow heard that someone belonging to the Christian community in Corinth was sleeping with his stepmom. Now, not that I'm justifying it in any way, nor, nor making it any acceptable or less gross, but when it says that his, it was his father's wife, she was most likely his dad's second wife and was probably much younger than his actual mom. But young or old, it doesn't matter because Paul tells us that this kind of relationship isn't even tolerated by pagans. Now, what's interesting here is that the word that Paul uses for pagans is actually the word ethnos. That word ethnos, Paul actually uses and translates Gentile. So if we were to translate this verse, it would say, in fact, I heard that there is a sexual immorality among you and a sexual immorality of such a kind that is not even practiced by Gentiles. Now, why does this matter? Gentiles, pagans, what's the difference? Well, it's because the Corinthian Christians are actually ethnically Christian, uh, ethnically Gentiles. You were either a Jew or you weren't. But in pointing out that there is sexual sin that isn't even tolerated by even Gentiles, Paul is actually assuming that the Corinthian Christians are Gentile no longer. As people who follow Jesus, as people who are in the Messiah, we belong to a new corporate family and we have a new corporate identity, which is what makes the sin of this man. Even worse, his actions and behavior didn't reflect his identity. And what's worse is that he was doing something that even non-Christians didn't approve of and would often be stumbled by. Back in uh, chapter one, verse 23, the Apostle Paul writes that if Jews and Greeks are to be stumbled, let the stumbling block be the cross of Jesus and nothing else. But I think usually The cross often isn't the stumbling block. You see, the hurdle that people have isn't so much the possibility of Jesus dying on the cross for sinners. That was actually a known fact. The hurdle usually isn't the cross. Rather, you know what the hurdle is? The hurdle is actually Christians. The cross usually isn't the stumbling block. It's usually the people who claim to stand beside it and the people who claim to live under its shade. One scholar points out that because of the cross, first century Gentiles were already prone to believing the worst about Christians. And so if your non-Christian friends knew that you were doing something that not even they did, aren't we giving them even more reasons to doubt the saving and redemptive power of God in our lives and the redeeming and transformative power to change the life of others? Are we giving reasons? Are we giving fuel? Are we giving ammo for our non-Christian family members and relatives to doubt the sincerity of our faith and the power of the cross? Maybe it isn't so much the kinds of things that, our, that even our non-Christian friends or family wouldn't do, but maybe more the kinds of things that surprise them. Is there anything in our lives that would prompt your friends' eyebrows to raise a little bit? Like, I didn't know Christians did this. I didn't know Christians said this. Or maybe after a period of time, it's no longer the kind of things that surprise them, but the kind of things that confirm their suspicions all along. Like, you know what? I knew Christians were just a bunch of hypocrites anyway. Like, I knew all of you were like this. So, a question I want to ask you is what is your reputation as a Christian? What is your reputation as a Christian? Maybe for some of us, we don't even tell our friends that we're Christians because we're actually afraid of the fact that we might actually profane the name of Jesus. You know, as a pastor, the the most common, but maybe most important reason that people tell me for refusing to commit their lives to Jesus is the inconsistency of a Christian's belief and a Christian's conduct. It is one of the most common reasons why people leave the church and one of the most common reasons why people will never ever step inside a church ever again. And it is one of the most disheartening reasons because I've seen it happen in my own life and I've also seen it happen in the lives of others. But you know also at the same time, this is also why I'm so thankful for the cross of Jesus. Because the ultimate proof of the power and love of God does not rest in the Christian. It rests in Jesus, the the God-man who stepped in our place going to the cross, dying for our failures and taking the wrath of God upon himself and who even now is in the process of making us new. The brokenness and weaknesses of Christians exist to show that the surpassing power does not belong to us, but to God. The most startling part of Paul's response isn't that he even condemned the guy who was sleeping with his stepmom. The startling part is who he also scolds in addition to the guy. Take a look at verse 2. And you are arrogant. Are you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. And so despite the fact that it was only the dude, the Apostle Paul says that the failure of the family of God to discipline and remove him from fellowship makes them just as guilty. Guilty. And I think this might surprise some of us. Like, how can that be fair? And what we fail to recognize and realize is that in Christianity, there is no such thing as Lone Ranger Christianity. There's no such thing as a privatized, individualized Christianity. Because your Christianity affects the whole and some of the whole family. Later in 1 Corinthians, Paul will tell us that the church is not only a family, but it is a body where one body affects the other part of the body. What happens to one family member affects the whole family. And what that tells us is that Christianity is actually deeply communal. Deeply communal. Now what does this mean? It means that when one person sins, it's, not, it's, it's never just an isolated incident. Sin has corporate consequences. It has ripple effects and consequences that will also affect everyone else in the family. And when we see a family member doing something wrong, we become complicit in their wrongdoing if we don't do anything about it. Everyone else is just as guilty for doing nothing about it. What this tells us is that we are are actually our brother's and sister's keeper. So when Seth does something wrong, it affects the whole. When Taylor does something wrong, it affects the whole. But there are more questions that we need to ask here. Why does the Apostle Paul say that they are arrogant? Well, it's a little ambiguous. Are they arrogant because of the sin or in spite of the sin? Like, are they full of praise that the sin was committed? Or are they self-righteous that they weren't the ones who committed it? And I don't have enough time to prove it, so just you just have to trust me on this one. But the reason why they were arrogant was most likely because they thought that we were better than the guy who was sleeping with his stepmom. You can kind of imagine yourself in the Corinthians position here. If you heard of a guy sleeping with his stepmom, you'd be like, what is wrong with that guy? I'm glad I'm not like that guy. Why does it matter? It's because in thinking that they were better than this man, they ended up ignoring his sin. In ignoring and not addressing his sin, they stood in self-righteous judgment over it. And I think that exposes our usual attitude toward the sins of others. When it comes to addressing sin, we do either one of two extreme things. The first is we either police sin or secondly, we ignore sin. We either police sin or we either ignore sin. You know, Megan and I, um, just a couple of days ago on Wednesday, we um, took a trip out to uh, Palm Springs with a few friends of ours and uh, they brought their kids with them too. And uh, you know, I love their kids. They're super adorable, super cute. Uh, they're also super funny. Um, and... Uh, Um, It's an older brother and a younger sister. And one of the funny things I noticed was that this older brother loved tattling on his sister. (laughs) He was constantly enforcing the rules even when his parents weren't there. Like, I am the boss here. And telling his parents whenever his little sister was doing something wrong or what he thought was just right. And, you know, I think some of us are kind of like my friend's son. We are always on some kind of sin hunt. Anytime someone does something wrong, we gossip about about it to others. Uh, we keep a mental ledger of all their wrongdoings. But on the other hand, for probably most of us, tattling on others is probably not our default. For most of us, if not all of us, our default isn't to police sin. It's usually to ignore it and tolerate it. Even when we know that someone is doing something wrong because we like them, or we don't want to jeopardize our friendship with them, uh, or we don't want to make the relationship awkward, we just don't tell them. Like we just say, hey, it's all good. Uh, we're not perfect. Jesus loves you as you are. You do you. And I think one of the many great strengths of making everything gospel-centered is also one of its greatest weaknesses. Now, before you misinterpret, I, I, I love the gospel. I absolutely believe that the good news of the gospel of God's kingdom is the power of God for salvation and for transformation. But nowadays, the phrase gospel-centered, you just see it plastered on everything. Gospel-centered parenting, gospel-centered clothing, gospel-centered phone, whatever. We almost use gospel-centered as a brand. Like we are gospel-centered and we are free in Christ and we're recovering Pharisees and legalists. Rules are so archaic. But listen to this. Christians rightly reject excessive boundaries of legalism. Like you can't watch TV or you shouldn't dress this way or that way or you can't own a nice car. But here's the thing. But in rejecting the excessive boundaries of legalism, what I've often noticed as a pastor is that this rejection never seems to manifest itself in greater pursuit of integrity, in greater pursuit of holiness, goodness, a greater pursuit of virtue, a greater pursuit of wisdom, but only in more rationalized dabbling in the dirtiness of the world. Theologian David Wells calls this worldliness a system of values that displaces God and his truth from the world and makes sin look normal and righteousness seem strange. That's where I got the sermon title from. At the end of the day, gospel-centered Christians are just as worldly as non-Christians. And all that that gospel-centeredness is is really a brand of Christianity. But there's a deeper reason why we ignore and don't address the, the sins of others. It's because I think deep down, I think we just don't care enough about people. One commentator points out that the church most likely ignored this man's sin because of his higher social status and wealth. To call this person out on his sin possibly jeopardized their legal status and financial standing, especially if he was wealthy. Their failure to address his sin was motivated less so by a love and concern for his soul, but a love and concern for themselves. What about us? The problem isn't that we value their friendship or value them too much, but because in not ruffling any feathers at all, we value them too little. Because our greatest desire isn't their holiness or their repentance, but our own comfort and safety. You know, there's a famous quote that uh, Martin Luther King Jr. had uh, said in a famous speech of his. And obviously, I don't endorse all that MLK Jr. says, but I think this one is uh, pretty spot on. He said that there comes a time when silence becomes betrayal. So in saying nothing about the sins of others, maybe we've saved ourselves from maybe an awkward conversation or two, but we've also stabbed them in the back. In light of all this, the Apostle Paul holds the Corinthian church responsible for this man's sin. Why? Well, the, the word for mourn here implies sorrow over the sins of others and confessing the sin as if it were their own. The author Nasim Taleb wrote that if you see fraud and do not save fraud, you are a fraud. And then Paul says something that I think will surprise us. To demonstrate the consequences and severity of his actions, the Apostle Paul calls them to remove the man from their church family and to bar him from fellowship. And just to show you on what kind of authority allows the Corinthians to do that, take a look at verses 3 to 5. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the direct destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Now what the heck is going on here? I'll get into the real practical stuff in a second point, but I'll give you a small one for now. What this passage limits us from doing is that barring someone from fellowship is not an individual Christian thing. Like, you can't just tell someone, hey, you can't go to church anymore. Like, you don't get to decide that individually. One thing that is hard to see in these verses is that the second person pronouns are plural. Now, that's obviously implied. But what that means is that disciplining someone is a communal decision. Paul says that when you are assembled in the Lord Jesus... And when Paul does that, when he invokes the name of the Lord Jesus, he is referring back to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 28, uh, Matthew, sorry, not Matthew 18, verses 15 to 20. And we're going to look at that passage to really understand what Paul is saying here. So turn to your Bibles, put your finger in First Corinthians, turn to Matthew chapter 18. "If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone." About anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Now what's going on here? What Jesus is saying is, look, sometimes in the family of God, you're going to have disagreements, and not just disagreements, but you're also going to be having people who are going to wrong and sin against one another. And there are specific instructions when someone wrongs another brother or sister. You approach the offender and you tell them their wrongdoings. And if they don't listen, then you bring a couple of other people involved. And if they don't listen, then you tell it to the whole church. And if, the, and if the, that person still does not listen, then you treat them as a Gentile and as a tax collector. And what that means is that when they still refuse to listen, Jesus says, treat them as an outsider of the church, bless you, who was in rebellion against not just the family of God, but God himself. And Jesus is saying, when you act like a real family, When you submit to my name and authority, when you call, when you, when you lovingly call one another, one another out, and when you in love rebuke one another, and when you in love discipline one another, bless you. And God forbid, as a last resort, if they still don't listen, when you put, when you put them out from your family and treat them as a non-family member, I am present there. I am with you there. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, I am backing your decision to cast this person outside of the church. For most of us, we think that that the church is just a group of people that you've grown up with. But what we actually see here is that the family of God is way more. When the family of God gathers and gathers, especially in times of family discipline, discipline, the Lord of the church is actually there. In other words, when the church disciplines someone, Jesus backs them up. And this is really, really serious stuff. What Paul is saying is that the only time you don't treat your brother or sister like a brother or sister is when the whole family collectively decides that they are not a sibling anymore. Now this is really intense and we're going to get into a lot of trouble if we don't understand specifically what kind of wrongs that we're talking about here. What kind of sin, what kind of sin warrants this kind of family discipline? In 1 John chapter 3, verse the Apostle John writes that whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil for the devil has been sinning from the beginning no one born of God makes a practice of sinning Hebrews chapter chapter 10 verse 26 says that if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins notice that these verses don't say if anyone struggles with sin at all or if you still sin after becoming a Christian that is not what warrants this kind of family discipline here Notice that in those verses, it's not the specific quality of sin or even quantity of sin, but the deliberate repetition of sin. The deliberate repetition of sin. So when you tell someone, look, you hurt my feelings here, and the other person makes excuses and justifies the behavior, or when they just say they don't care and say, so what? I don't care. And when you bring a couple of other people to make sure that they don't, they understand the situation and they still don't care and they bring it to the whole church and they still deliberately don't care, only then can we make this kind of family discipline call. And only then does Jesus back us up here. And we need to be really careful, really, really humble about this. Slow to speak, quick to hear. Because I've heard of so many churches fall apart because every week it just seemed like they were church disciplining someone new. I'm not saying that none of us struggle or that the the non-disciplined Christians are perfect people, but the family discipline that we're talking about here is the hard-hearted kind. The kind that is unwilling to listen when told that they did something wrong. When more than one person, when the whole church tells them, but still refuse to listen. This tells us something here. That God actually cares about you. That he cares about your sin. It's the lack of sincerity, the lack of repentance, the lack of brokenness. This is when multiple people and the whole church has talked with you about your sin and you, and you still refuse to listen. Out of the, the 16 years of existence at Lighthouse, church discipline has only been, thankfully, performed once and with great trepidation, great fear. Family discipline, the kind that puts someone outside of church doors, is always the last resort. Now going back to 1 Corinthians, what does it mean when we are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh? Why does Paul say this? Well, Paul is saying simply is if Satan prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, place the man outside the safety of his home and family and let him see the devastation of his own sin and destruction and its consequences. And it is to show him that God actually cares about the devastation that sin creates in its wake. It's not arbitrary here. Imagine a family. Maybe you might know this family. Maybe it's you. Maybe imagine a family where the older sibling gets into the wrong group of friends. And gets into drugs. Starts sneaking outside of the house. Stealing money from mom and dad's purse or wallet. Tempting the younger siblings. And after intervention after intervention, conversation after conversation, late night after late night, the family gets to a point where in love, in love, in mourning, in lament and grieving, the family puts the oldest child out of the house for the child's own good. To wake the child up and to protect the family. That is the imagery that Paul is drawing here. It's exactly why the Apostle Paul writes in verses 6 to 7, Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. How many of you guys have seen uh, mold grow in your food in the refrigerator? I think all of us have. How many of you guys throw it away? I think most of us. Maybe your parents do. Maybe not you. How many of you guys try to cut it off? Uh, at least the moldy parts and just keep the rest. I've definitely done that. Um, I used to just cut off moldy food and I ate the rest, but I found out that since getting married that if something is already infected with mold, the entire thing is not good. And so as you all know, a little mold in your apple pie eventually causes the rest of the apple pie to grow moldy. It's the same idea with this thing called leaven. Leaven is a kind of yeast. And so yeast or leaven was typically a metaphor used for sin. And so so leaven, like mold or even something like cancer, starts really small and it spreads and infects and it kills from the inside out. Now we are a family. We are brothers and sisters. And when unrepentant sin gets to the point where it is so hardened and it is affecting the whole family, we need to put the sibling out of the house to wake them up and to protect the family. What's important to remember here is that this chapter deals less so with the man in sin and more with the church that is not dealing with the man in sin. I think a lot of us are pretty pretty familiar with the idea of consequences. Like if a classmate of yours was cheating on his AP tests, you would want to have some kind of disciplinary action taking place. If you found out that a bunch of millionaires, not going to name who, but you know, the Laughlin's uh, were wondering money. Were, we're laundering money to famous colleges so their kids could get in. You would want there to be some kind of disciplinary action. But I think our view of discipline is maybe just a little too narrow. When people cheat, when people lie, when people take advantage, we want justice. But the kind of discipline that God gives is mercy. If you take a look at the last half of verse five again, it says, "So that his spirit may be saved." In the day of the Lord, God only disciplines to save people from their own destruction. God only dis- bless you. God only disciplines to save people from their own destruction. The ultimate goal in discipline is salvation and restoration. The worst thing that we can do for a family, family member is to not tell them that they are going down the path of destruction, so that they are deceived into thinking that they are Christians. In loving discipline, God's goal is to win them over. When Jesus says that we are to let those who are unrepentant to be as Gentiles and tax collectors, it's not, it's by no coincidence here. What's interesting is that those who are, ex- those are exactly the kind of people Jesus goes after to save the tax collector and the sinner. Even though people hated Gentiles and tax collectors, these were the people that Jesus would often go after. Jesus did not despise these people. Because more than anyone else, he knew their lostness was more than they knew it themselves. It was always for the purpose of restoration to Jesus in the family of God. And what this means for us is that we don't completely cut people out of our lives or we just give up on them. But we seek and pursue the lost just as Jesus sought and saved the lost. Take a look at verses 78. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. In Hebrews chapter 13, verses 11 to 12, the author writes that just as a sacrifice for sin is burned outside the camp, so also Jesus suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Jesus takes the leaven of our sin, he bears our reproach, and he goes Outside the camp. You see, the sinner was, was the one who was supposed to go outside of the camp. But instead, Jesus is the one who goes outside the camp for us. Jesus was cut off from the life of God so that, we could not, so that we would not be cut off from the life of God. That is the ultimate consequence. It's life apart from God. And I don't know if we realize this for a second. Like, Actually, life apart from God, guys. Come on. That is why the Apostle Paul takes the responsibility of the church to deal with sin so seriously. Because God took it upon himself and took it so seriously that he took the life of his own son for us. All of us have sinned and will sin in the future. Maybe some of us will sin tonight. But what Paul reminds us is that Jesus, as our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed once for all. If you are a Christian, it means that you have been forgiven by the blood of the Lamb. And it also means that if your siblings sin against you, they've also been forgiven by the blood of the Lamb. The blood that we share as a family is the blood that we share for all of us and for our sins. When our brothers and sisters aren't walking in the way of Jesus, we go after our brothers and sisters with sincerity and truth. To speak the truth in love to make charitable and kind judgments with pure motives and clear consciences. We walk alongside with one another and hold each other accountable because at the end of the day we are our brothers and sisters keeper. And it is our responsibility to make sure that we keep each other on the right track following in the way of Jesus. So that's the first point. The second point is living in the way of Jesus ourselves. We need to be living in the way of Jesus ourselves. Take a look finally at verses 9 to 10. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or the swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. Paul is referring back to the first letter that he had written. So remember, 1 Corinthians actually 2 Corinthians. So this is the first letter he's talking about here. Paul is referring back to the first letter that he had written and he wants to make a clarification that when he said not to associate with sexually immoral people, he did not mean those outside, but those inside. Because because they were not to retreat from society, but be missionaries to society. You ever wonder why God doesn't place churches underground, but instead on street corners, communities, neighborhoods, urban centers? You ever wonder why God plops you right in the middle in the thick of your friends, your neighbors, your classmates, your loved ones, relatives who know nothing about the good news of the gospel, <coughs> whose lives are in rebellion against God, who are lost, who are sexually broken, who are arrogant? You want to know why? It is so that you can demonstrate to the world what, it is, what it's like to be, to be a part of the family of God. To be forgiven. To love. To forgive. To be To be loved. To belong to the living God and the people whom he has ransomed by his blood. To live with a distinct character and mission. To be a countercultural, cross shaped community. To be a family where each member of the family is to take an active responsibility for one another's lives and spiritual well being. To allow our lives to be seen and to validate the message that we proclaim. One commentator writes that the world. The world is waiting to see such a church, a church that which takes sin seriously, which enjoys forgiveness fully, which in its time of gathering combines joyful celebration with an awesome sense of God's immediacy and authority. Paul does not call us to leave the world, but to stay in the world and to be lights in the world. Now, what does he call us to do instead? Take a look at verse 11. But now... I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or as an idolater, reviler, drunkard, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Who are the people that Paul is talking about here? He isn't talking about those who have sin in their lives because all of us do. He isn't talking about those who struggle with sin. He isn't talking about those who are broken over and mourn over their sin. He's talking about those who profess to be Christians and yet live in habitual, unrepentant, and defiant sin against God. Whether it is greed, anger, 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 idolatry, drunkenness, or sexual immorality. It is people who profess to be Christians, go to church, read, read what the Bible says, and living in blatant Disregard. I know what God says, but you know what? Who cares? And what Paul says is treat them like an unbeliever. Because you're not even going to share the table of communion with them. We are to give no indication that they are okay with God because they are not. But so often we get it backwards. You see, sin is really, obviously sin is really, really dangerous and contagious as we've seen. But one of the things that we are often unaware of and what we need to hear Paul over and over again is that we think the real danger is out the, outside the church walls. It's on social media, in our schools, or in the music that we listen to. But it's not. Paul reveals that the real insidious and deceitful danger is right here under our noses. It isn't sin out there but sin sitting right next to you and sin in your own heart. That's where it's really infectious and dangerous. It's not out in the world, but inside the church. Christians are world famous, or I should say notorious for judging those outside the church. But look at what Paul says in verses 12 to 13. He says, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. If you want to confront someone who calls themselves a Christian and they refuse to listen and bring you, and you bring a few others, that is biblical. But we have no business judging those outside the church. This means that as God's covenant people, as His family, it is our responsibility to preserve the unity. The purity of the church. It is not our responsibility to enforce and expect the same standards of obedience to non-Christians. Which I think so many Christians are so prone to doing. Why? Because Paul reminds us that God is the one who will judge the outsider. We are called to love outsiders, not judge outsiders. The only judgment that should be going on right now is the kind that happens among brothers and sisters. Where we each hold one another accountable to following Jesus. God saves you to change you. And one of his means of doing so is through the people around you, through your brother and sister sitting next to you. In the family of God, God invites you to come as you are, but never so that you would stay as you are. And this model actually has some application for us to follow. Just as the church's responsibility is to point the finger at themselves before pointing it at the world, it is also the individual Christian's response to point the finger at ourselves before pointing it at at our other brothers and sisters. One of the reasons why our words often fall on deaf ears with people in general, you want to know why? One of the reasons is because we simply haven't lived out what we've been preaching to other people. Maybe sometimes that's the reason why we don't listen to our parents. Maybe we don't see it living out in their lives too. But we are telling others to clean their own room before we've even cleaned our own What what credibility do we have as brothers and sisters if we tell people to remove the speck out of their own eye, even though we have a huge forest in front of our face? So before you speak the truth into your brother or sister's life, you need to allow truth to change you in your own life. So are there any similar areas in your life that need to be addressed? Is there any genuine confession over the brokenness of your own sin in your life? And finally, as we seek to get the speck out of our siblings' eyes, are we doing so with care? I think sometimes we will just, like, jab our fingers into the eyes of other people. Are we doing it with care? With gentleness and and genuine care for their own soul, rather than out of pettiness or spite? And you know, I often operate my life with a guilty until proven innocent verdict, But the call of love in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 actually calls us to hope the best until we have evidence proving otherwise. You know, I was watching a super cringy uh, interview of of Brie Larson, who plays Captain Marvel, where she's answering the most searched questions about her on Google. And it's interesting how she responds to these questions because she's like, with every question, she's just completely suspicious and questioning the motive of every single question when there really doesn't seem to be really any ill intent at all behind the question. For example, one of the questions had asked, where is Brie Larson from? And she had spent 30 seconds in the interview explaining why it was a dumb question. And so when you live your life assuming the worst in everything, suspicious about everything, you, might, you make life pretty difficult for yourself and life pretty difficult for others as well. And so as the family of God, we, we are to seek the best. We are to hope the best in others, to be transparent about our sins and struggles, to be willing to receive instruction, encouragement, and sometimes correction, to help those who need help, to speak the truth in love always, and sometimes to call others to repentance. Your responsibility as a Christian is to be your brother's keeper, not the outsider's keeper. It is our first responsibility to model God's countercultural standards before a watching world rather than trying to impose those standards onto the world. It is when we clean our own house that we can actually have a profound witness, actually something to share and something to say to this dying world. So what happened with uh, Lulu and her grandma? Well, it turns out that this elaborate lie actually prolonged her life, so I guess that just invalidates everything that I've said so far. Uh, just kidding. Uh, but why Why? I mean, we have to kind of investigate the psychology of why they would develop an elaborate lie. Why build this elaborate lie and go through the work of sending fake wedding invitations, shedding fake tears and pretending that everything was all fine, when everything really wasn't? Why build this elaborate lie when all they could have done simply was a telegram that she was dying? one family member said that it was because of one fundamental cultural difference. He claimed that Western thinking sees one person's life as belonging to their own with no consequence to others. And I think that's true. But in the East, actually, Christianity is actually a Middle Eastern religion, just FYI. But in the East, one person's life belonged to a collective whole. What happens to one family member affects the whole family. In the family of God, we hold one another accountable to a larger network of relationships between God and his people, where the health of, health of one affects the whole. A family centered on Messiah are to live counterculturally by holding family members accountable to the way of Jesus, and by living in the way of Jesus ourselves. Let's pray together. God, we need your help because... Applied wrongly, we can be really hypocritical. And we can be really judgmental. But Lord, we also do recognize that applied well, we can actually see something beyond just the limited amount of hurt. But to see actually your spirit working in the lives of your people. To see hearts transformed, people changed by the power of the gospel. And so God, we need your help. We do, we do trust in the power of the gospel that changed lives. And so God, we trust that you'll be working in our lives even tonight as we go in small groups together. So God, we thank you. We love you so much. We ask all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.